Before we start the show, a quick word about another podcast, Hot Take. On Cricket Media's newest podcast, Hot Take, real-life friends and climate essayists Mary Anais Heglar and Amy Westervelt provide a holistic, irreverent, and honest look at the climate crisis and all the ways media and society are talking and not talking about it. Each week, they'll bring you the latest climate news with the journalists and storytellers trying to make sense of this complex issue. With fresh humanity and humor, their conversations move swiftly from cackling about the bad week an oil company had to speaking seriously and passionately about the unequal distribution of climate impacts to even their own experience of climate grief. Listen to new episodes of Hot Take every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hot Take, Hot Buttons, they're like our sisters over there. Postscript Media, podcast for changing planet. In addition to all the other great things going on, I think that we are about to have a thunderstorm here in New Orleans. <laughs> great. No, oh. I just heard, I think that was thunder. I'm You've got like, a lot going on right now. <laughs> <laughs> You're, there's going to be a marching band coming through your door. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a monkey crashing cymbals <laughs> together. That could totally happen. I can't wait. <laughs> oh, my God. This is Hot Buttons, a show about the future of fashion and culture on a changing planet. I'm Christina Binkley. I'm a contributing writer at Vogue Business and The Wall Street Journal. This week, the metaverse, an online world where our digital avatars can work, play, meet, and fall in love, and dress in whatever we want. It's being framed as a sustainability play. Is it? Like all things Web3, it's pitched as a utopia, but we'll look past the hype and see how it's actually playing out. Then, has fast fashion ruined thrifting? Secondhand retailers are being flooded with donated clothes from the likes of Shein, H&M, and Zara, and seasoned thrifters are despondent. It's driving up prices and making those desirable vintage and unique items harder to find. I'm finding that this week. I'll tell you a little bit more about that later. What is the future of thrifting? And we'll finish with a dose of optimism. We need that these days. We'll all share some of the trends and companies that are keeping us feeling positive about the fashion industry. I'm joined by my regular co-hosts, Shilla Kim Parker and Rachel Kibbe. Hey, guys. Hey, Christina. Hi there. Shilla is the CEO and co-founder of Thrilling, a marketplace for vintage powered by mom and pop shops. And Rachel is the founder of Circular Services Group, an advisory firm focused on circularity in fashion. Well, I'm blushing. I don't know about you guys. I feel like it's not polite to brag, but <clears throat> Cosmopolitan Magazine it. named us the number one best podcast of the year so far. And then on Monday, Woo-hoo. Apple Podcasts included us in their new noteworthy pods. Totally crazy. I know. <laughs> Isn't that something? Yay. It's a real. I mean, I just assumed that it was mostly, you know, our immediate family that was maybe tuning in. So I, <laughs> it's a pleasant surprise. I, I don't know if I, my I was, immediate family stunned. is tuning in. I know. That that might I, be even too generous an assumption. <laughs> I've been actually stomping around my house going, have you listened yet? <laughs> yeah. Dad, if you're listening. <laughs> yeah. I actually think my kids were kind of impressed with that. They were like, oh. It's a real podcast. Are your kids listening, Christina? <laughs> I don't know if my daughter has. My son has, and my husband oh, has. Cool. Actually, my husband is one of our best publicists, I think, because he's been like Amazing. literally going out and getting people from his high school class. No to way. Him. It, it must, out it must there. be him then. <laughs> we have him to thank. <laughs> yes. Thank you for getting anyway. us into Cosmo, Christina's husband. <laughs> I don't know if yeah, he has exactly. that reach, actually. Yeah. But anyway. <laughs> Um, do we want to talk about Parasode Couture Week? This was kind yeah. of a, let's just take a second, okay? Yes, um, okay. You know, it's been, a, it's been a big fashion month. It goes, the way this, the calendar works, as many of us know, is we've got Men's Week in Milan, and then everybody bops over to Paris for Haute Couture Week. And Haute Couture Week has been a little funky for a number of years because other brands come in that aren't Haute Couture brands that are, you know, you have to, to be actually an haute couture brand, you have to be sort of uh, approved by um, the Fédération in, in France and whatnot. And, um, and then some brands these days have decided to make their own haute couture weeks and drag everybody back to Italy after haute couture week. So they had a Valentino show in Rome, Dolce Gabbana, they just finished up their Alta Moda show in Sicily. And then we get this delightful, it's not delightful, it's, you know, Valentino is, hold it. It's Dior is suing Valentino 
because Valentino, did I get that right or yep. is it the other way around? Yep. No, you're right. You got it right. Okay. Dior is suing Valentino because Valentino had their show in Rome and it blocked access to the Dior store so customers couldn't get to it. And the in thing that's really wild about week. this. It gets better. Do you guys remember that the two designers, the designer of um, Dior and the designer of Valentino used to be co-designers at oh, Valentino no. together. They have there worked you go. very There's closely the rub. for years. You're right, exactly. I wonder. I wonder. Uh, anyway. I thought beyond the drama, I know we all talked about it in Slack and texts. Um, you know, I did think that Valentino show was just transcendent. Um, yeah. I feel like. If, Absolutely. I was thinking if you're going to show somebody who's not into fashion and tell them to watch one runway show to get them kind of excited and inspired about what fashion is all about. That's the show. If oh. they're not, there's no hope. That's so there, cool. There, there is absolutely no hope if that right. didn't move you. If did, It has it all. It's got the yeah. showmanship. It has history. It has uh, music. It had a soundtrack that was written for it. And, I mean, yeah, the layers yeah. go deep, too. I mean, Vanessa Friedman was live tweeting from the show, and she said that, the models were allowed to decide what shoes they wore, whether it was heels or kitten heels or flats. I love that. They invited never heard of that 120 before. fashion students from Rome were allowed to come. Um, I mean, and then, I mean, it goes so deep. Like Florence Pugh, the actress, wore one of the um, Valentino dresses in the front row. And it, it was a sheer top. And it's a, I have a funny story to tell because – Earlier this week, I had been talking to a friend. I've seen that happen in swimsuits, sheer tops. And I was saying, oh, I can't believe it. We've gone too far. We've gone too far. And then there was this social media scandal where she was getting attacked by men for wearing this sheer top. And she put out a statement saying they had expected and anticipated this. And it was sort of an act of rebellion for her to wear this top. And I think we're going to see sheer numbers uh, and the nipple being freed, <laughs> if I'm allowed to say, a lot more after after she wore this. And I think it, her IG response, her Instagram response was beautiful. Um, she said, it makes me wonder what happened to you to be so loudly upset by the size of my boobs and my body. The dress was stunning, I have to say. So was she. And I think that we're going to have a, one of those fashion moments where uh, fashion is sort of changed forever by a show. Wow. Yeah. That's big. That is big. I think it's also worth um, giving Valentino kudos for having one of the most diverse shows, I think, uh, of any of the shows over this season in terms of race, ethnicity, um, and also body size. And, you know, that's so unusual coming out of Italy. It really is. Yep. Like, that's a big step forward. That country's fashion brands have have stumbled more times than any other nation's in these issues in the number of years. And it's like, even as many consultants as they've all hired, I should say, by the way, Valentino is not one of the brands that stumbled in, in the last few years on this. Um, and as far as I know, they haven't hired a contingent of consultants to advise them on diversity. I think it's coming from someplace very genuine. I, I would say too, I would just say if there's one thing out of this op episode I would encourage people to do is go to Vogue.com and go and watch the video that was posted of this show. It truly is magical, really. That's a that's a genuine endorsement, not that, sponsored. Yeah, there's not that sponsored. is not sponsored. <laughs> I was blown away. Cool. I was moved to tears, I have to say, by that show. That's really cool. Agree. And if you're there, look at the Dolce Gabbana Altimoto one too. That's quite a, that's that's quite a spectacle. That's a whole nother level of fashion show because Altimoto lasts for three days. It's insane. Okay, let's move right into our first topic, the metaverse. I can't, I almost can't believe we're talking about the metaverse because I've been sort of wow. I don't know if you guys heard that, but the that's lightning. thunder. <laughs> The metaverse. Oh, right after wow. she said metaverse. Wow. Okay. No, honestly, the metaverse is. I've been. Somewhat scornful just in my use of that word. I think a lot of us are. I shouldn't be. I should stop. Especially because the metaverse is clearly happening. It's coming on. We have to wrap our, arm, our arms around it. And, um, and it's also a topic that is so big that we could do many episodes on it. So we're not going to try to cover the entire metaverse in the next 15 minutes. We're going to take it a bite at a time. But we've all heard of it. Mark Zuckerberg revanded. Facebook is meta. And, um, and actually, one of the things that, that has helped me 
understand what the metaverse is or could be is watching Fortnite gamers as they're not just playing games um, and shooting each other, but they're attending virtual concerts and they're getting dressed and buying clothes like Balenciaga hoodies, you know, within the Fortnite game. So question is, what does it mean for us in the fashion industry? Um, and But maybe before we dive in, we should start with a few definitions. Um, Rachel, can you help us understand, can you define the metaverse in words that sort of make sense to you, um, understanding that it isn't actually yet fully defined. We're, we're all of us sort of exploring this. Yeah, I think that's right. I think the first step is to say that it's not fully defined. Um, and it's sort of whatever exists in our imagination and could be about it will be. It's up to us to create. That said, um, we can start sort of extrapolating the early metaverse into what um, it may be in the future. If you think about how we're sort of already casting ourselves as our own stars of our own of our own universes on Instagram and TikTok, um, YouTube, and then you think about how CGI animation has been around for many years now, it mm-hmm. makes sense for us to sort of borrow from this digital art form as we look for new ways to represent ourselves and interact together across platforms online. Um, there's also a lot of money to be made, which I want to talk about. <laughs> I think that's that's really important to acknowledge at the top here. It may be worth $13 trillion by 2030, and wow. it will likely be used by 60% of the world by 2030. Okay. When you say $13 trillion, you're not just talking about fashion. Is that that's sort of like the Everything. GDP of the metaverse? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I'm curious. It's its own nation. Oh, I think it's important to mention, too, I was just, I should have known about this before, but I didn't. Um, There's a novel called Snow Crash that was written in the early 90s. It was a sci-fi novel by Neil Stevenson that predicted the metaverse. It was called the metaverse in his novel. (laughs) It also predicted hyperinflation, inequality, a virus, and cryptocurrency. And recently to the New York Post, he said, right now the metaverse is a primordial soup of lots of big and small companies banging into each other. And that the metaverse is neither dystopian nor utopian, but has the potential to be either of those things. This is just the nature of hum- the human condition. Hmm. God, very so interesting. Got to read that book. Figure out I what's going to happen next. Seriously, <laughs> 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 it's like Jules Verne predicting yeah. the submarine. He, he, wow, by the right. way, he's like a, a guru to most of the tech billionaires now. The author. I of would think so. I guess he invented the term <laughs> metaverse for one thing. Shocking. So back in March. 3DM hosted the first ever Metaverse Fashion Week in an online destination called Decentraland. Um, brands like DKNY and Tommy Hilfiger and Dolce Gabbana and Etro were there. So people were taking it seriously. And sustainability was a theme, although it wasn't really clear how it's sustainable. Um, I mean, we still need clothes in real life, I think. Anyway, they say that it'll open up ways for designers to get into a fashion week or help brands cash in on the NFT boom, which quite frankly doesn't sound so great now as it did maybe six months ago because it's busting all over the place. But I have so many questions about this. Rachel, um, would you take a stab at what does the metaverse mean for brands, fashion brands, that are reaching consumers in new ways? So really, right now especially, like this moment in time, the way brands are approaching the metaverse is really through this sort of digital fashion industry opportunity. The digital fashion industry is predicted to be worth $50 billion by 2030. And if you think about it right now, right now today, we have 300 million active metaverse users, meaning they have an active avatar in the virtual world, or at least one NFT. And get this, they spend 3.4 five more time online than social media users. So it's no oh, wow. wonder that fashion brands are looking at this as a customer acquisition tool. And that's really like fundamentally what we have to understand the metaverse to be. Yes, it involves creativity and fantasy and a lot of the things that fashion loves, but fashion loves those things because we're artists and we also need customers. So you have to find the customers. Tiffany Lung for The Interline wrote a great article about sort of this transformation of digital acquisition in in, in the metaverse. She said that Web3 is replacing digital advertising and changing the role of social media managers. Um, They're already starting to use private channels like Discord, Twitch, and WhatsApp to reach more and more customers. So um, the reason for this is because it's becoming more and more costly to 
access customers through traditional digital acquisition methods. She says, users have transformed into creators, content drives commerce, and a decentralized community builds brand value together. As opposed to paid reach, which is really like... the that's buying an ad. It's buying. Yeah. It's what you see on social media on Instagram, yeah. as opposed to paid reach. This marketing method allows brands to funnel customers from their database into groupings to build up engagement and retention within closed social circles. So it's also a different way of, of sort of thinking about your customers in smaller and smaller niche groups. Um, um, isn't that like segregating? I mean, <laughs> it's it's definitely or uh, hyper targeting. Uh, it's yeah. hyper-targeting, and I think like an ancillary consequence is segregation, and we've already seen how that has played out. I'm curious if this is an if you think this is an issue for the fashion industry because a lot of these guys that you say are spending three and a half more times um, on 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 these activities are probably tech oriented people that have traditionally not really been that interested in fashion. I mean, they're famous for their Patagonia well, vests, you know. I think that's 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 an interesting point, and that's what I would have thought too. But if you look at like Sims and Depop recently launched a partnership <laughs> together, and the reason they're doing this is because Sims has 39 million players, 61% are female, majority under 24, majority have an affinity for fashion and beauty. Oh my God. Yeah. So I think wow, that, that I we did don't not realize see really, coming. Yeah. Huh, I think we okay. don't realize who's out there gaming. <laughs> so what are they doing then? Because I mean, honestly. You know, this is me. I'm not into Fortnite. Um, not yet. And probably not going to be on Sims either if I haven't done it by now in my life. Um, <laughs> I like clothes in real world. I like the way they feel on my body, the way they look. <laughs> I mean, I you know, I love fabric um, and color, but <laughs> I don't really care that much about, you know, my, my digital self up there. Right. Um, but apparently... There's a lot of future. Like, there's a belief that a lot of people really will spend tons of money on digital clothes. Did you guys buy this? I mean, for me, I think, um, you know, like Rachel was saying, I agree that there are pockets right now where that's a that's a real current possibility. But I think for the general person, honestly, I, I think we're further off. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think pandemic was a perfect proving ground for this when forced most of us were forced to engage with virtual representations of ourselves and others. Did we like it? And I think for most of us, the answer is still no. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, Pew estimates 81% of Americans replaced in-person interactions with video. Zoom estimates 300 million meeting participants every single day. Um, So that's a large sample size. And yet two-thirds of Americans still don't think that they're adequate replacements for in-person connections. And I think we know that viscerally intuitively. You can have a video chat with grandma. You can meet with your therapist online. You can have virtual cocktails with your friends. um, But nothing quite yet replaces that intangible magic of being together in person. And I think if you look at apparel, you know, um, you know, recalling those stats of how many of us replaced in person with video, what happened to sales? In 2020, they dipped, but then in 2021, apparel sales came roaring back and some brands beat their pre-pandemic records. Um, and I think, you know, that just goes to show we could not replace that desire, exactly what you're saying, Christina, to express ourselves through physical clothes. But I, I think Rachel is right. Where is the potential for digital clothes? Where is that market big today? Where is the most passionate organic fan base today? It's it's definitely in gaming, Roblox, Two-thirds mm. of kids aged 9 to 12 play it. 50 million daily active users spending an average of three hours a day. Fortnite, 80 million monthly users. Forbes estimates that um, that Fortnite gamers have spent an equivalent of 10 million years playing Fortnite. <laughs> oh, God. oh, my God. <laughs> now we're kids kids is the digital clothes. Oh, exactly. A lot of digital clothes. And that's, that's exactly. And that's, that's a place where folks care a great deal about their avatars. They're already spending billions of dollars on their avatars. And it makes sense that Gucci, Balenciaga, Marc Jacobs, Valentino, Ralph Lauren, Adidas um, have taken that opportunity seriously and have, you know, created partnerships there and made money there. But to me, I believe that today it's still a supplemental revenue stream. It does not replace, I don't believe yet, that makes sense. In-person physical purchases of clothes. That that makes total sense. Can we talk quickly about whether it's sustainable? <laughs> yeah, Definitely. well, that, is that, isn't that, now we're into the same sort of issues of cryptocurrency, right? That it takes so much energy? Yeah. So um, buying or selling one NFT takes 18 liters of diesel. 
Wow. I mean, it takes 18 liters of non-renewable resources. <laughs> and then the global carbon footprint of data centers right now is about less than 2% of uh, global carbon emissions, but it's rising. So by 2040, data storage is predicted to account for 14% of the world's carbon emissions. This is a problem when, when we're thinking about, like, um, not only to Sheila's point, I think we're still going to buy physical things, but I don't. I don't think the digital world is going to curb that at all. And I think we might have just both. Um, and so when we're thinking about carbon footprint, I don't think it's more sustainable. But there is potential to inf- influence virtuous behavior. I do. I do think that because I think that by creating these, by sort of enabling niche audiences and access to niche audiences, you can communicate. Um, to a lot more people in a lot in a variety of ways. EcoAge, um, which is a sustainability advocacy and consultancy group run by Livia Firth, Firth already, um, she had a an award ceremony where she awarded young leaders in climate and social justice NFTs. And if you think about it, those NFTs could unlock all sorts of things throughout those young people's lifetime, including access to information and events. And then if you think about circularity too. If you're rewarding people with a skin by purchasing a physical good, like you buy a pair of Doc Martens and you get a, a skin in Fortnite to wear your uh, Doc Martens, you could think Hold about it. that. What is too. a skin? That's like so, something. Is that the term yeah. for a, an item of clothing that you put yeah, on your? What your avatar looks avatar? like. Okay. Yeah. So there's this thing called a digital twin, um, where uh, you're getting something digital along with uh, that that is replicated replicates the physical item you bought. Um, and the idea right now is that it'll be, it can be used in gaming. Um, so I think Balenciaga has done this with Fortnite and um, maybe Doc Martens, but taking that sort of, it's it's a brand rewarding a buyer with something that they can use digitally. And you can think about that in terms of circularity or sustainability. If someone buys something from you, perhaps you can tell them what to do with it next in terms of reuse and resale and even reward them for taking next right virtuous actions. So I do think that there's a place for sustainability, uh, sort of like, but everything in the metaverse is kind of on crack in a way. Like, I think Sheila said that about um, TikTok and Shein. It's like this new sort of, (laughs) everything is just more. (laughs) It's really true. You know, I I ended up with, I have on my phone, I have two NFTs that I did not pay for. They were given to everybody who attended a couple of fashion shows. Um, I don't even remember which shows they were right now at New York Fashion Week. I had this feeling Mm -hmm. like, it's like the way the cigarette companies used to like advertise yeah. to children, <laughs> sort of get them used to this <laughs> drug. Was it's like, oh, about it's candy that. flavored. Yeah, yeah. candy <laughs> flavored. Oh god! Someone was talking about how they were using it at concerts, and people were getting having so many NFT. Like scalpers were getting all these NFTs. People who buy tickets in in mass oh. and to to resell were getting so many NFTs they couldn't even keep track of them. <laughs> Um, <laughs> that's hilarious. <laughs> well, okay. One other thing I really want to I want to ask you guys about because we've been hearing about the promise of blockchain. I've been hearing that it's going to help us understand where our food comes from, where our clothes come from, down to the nitty gritty detail. Um, it's been talked about a lot as a solution for sustainable fashion, and you know, I, I'm not an expert in this, but it does seem to me that blockchain has a lot of promise for this gnarly system we have where, you know, the dress I'm wearing is cotton, but, you know, the cotton was grown one place, it was sewn someplace, the thread came from someplace, the buttons, there's tassels on it. I mean, I don't know how many other, how many places were sources for what I'm wearing. And I think the blockchain has some promise. What do you guys think about the promise for using it for traceability in clothing? Well, I would I would say yes and no. There's still a lot to work out. If you look, there's a recent fashion industry example. Actually, we can look to. Um, it's called Aurora Blockchain, the Aurora Blockchain Consortium. Um, the consortium is working with LVMH, Prada, Cartier, and they're working on a software that creates something uh, that I mentioned called a digital twin. Um, for over 20 yep. brands, they claim <laughs> to be uh, used already in 17 million products. The goal is exactly what you said, to enhance traceability. And what the digital twin does Mm -hmm. is provide sort of this ledger of information, either accessed on an app or a web page with material type source, where and when it was made, how many produced. 
but, 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 but as it, with most things in mm-hmm. the metaverse. Um, so it is intended to give consumers a greater level of authentication and also brands, brands, uh, especially luxury brands are really interested in authentication because that means that, um, yeah, for sure. That's to, lifeblood. Yeah. It's, to stop fakes, right? So you're not buying um, fakes. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But Daniela Ott, who I've actually met before, a lovely woman, she is the general secretary um, of this consortium. She said to CNN Business that blockchain has its limitations and that if a brand doesn't have a good relationship with the supplier, blockchain can, will not help because it relies on um, accurate information being inputted by mm-hmm. humans, right? So blockchain doesn't solve this human fallibility problem. Um, its promise of mm. providing increased transparency in the near term, in my opinion, is limited for many reasons, not least of which because of uh, this human fallibility factor. There are a few examples I've seen in the real world where um, on projects for uh Providence of wool, coffee beans, these sort of chain of custodies, te- chain of custody technologies. I've seen falter because the founder said it was easier and more accurate to use an Excel spreadsheet or existing technology to track and trace these supply chains. I think the near-term value of blockchain is really in this in cross-border payments, fast, no currency conversion. Like I think those are the things we're gonna see. See quickest, mm-hmm. and I think I, I do think oh. that co-ownership. Yeah, I, I think that functioning as a money and as a payment system is sort of where it is now, and where we're going to see the most sort of global value. It's already, that's already been sort of the reason it's gotten value, and I'll talk about why. Um, or co-ownership and investment in goods and services. Um, I think there's some promise with DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations, potentially offering more democratic ways to invest. I think NFTs, for the most part, are just sort of a way to sort of, and I, 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 I'll say it, NFTs are just pitching us more stuff in a way. Yeah, um, or trying to addict mm, us to certain, you know, reward, yeah. reward purchasing behaviors and things like that. Absolutely, like but I do think they're coupons, and I think that, I think they're a way to get us in the door, but I ultimately think that the 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 long-term value is a total sort of transformational shift in the way that we experience sort of our digital lives. The Harvard mm-hmm. Business Review wrote an article called The Truth About Blockchain by Marco Ianciti and Kareem Lakani. And they talk about how Web3 isn't going to be disruptive, like most of the technologies that we've known over uh, the last 30 years of our lives. It's going to be a truly foundational shift akin to the transition from landlines to the internet, which started in 1972 but didn't take off until the 90s. And as in today, most of the businesses that are going to be the largest businesses are going to be the plumbing for that. And I think the reason that... um, we're, we're going to see the fastest sort of transformation is in the money and payment space is because Bitcoin's already doing that. And it works because of the accuracy of on-chain data, data which is And we can grasp it. Like, can I can understand it. that. Some of the other stuff I really, to, I, my, my brain is still forming <laughs> new neural pathways to be able right. to even consider what they're talking about. Sounds like but, gobbledygook. Yeah, exactly. But I can or understand. peanuts when the adults are talking. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I mean, when you say this, Rachel, it makes me think that uh, governments better watch out because how are you going to collect tariffs if people yeah. are buying their things on and paying mm. for them via the blockchain. Well, they'll find a way. They'll find a way. I mean, I think that's going to be the biggest hurdle to just using Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency as money is keeping track of the tax on it. But I mm. I would say that Bitcoin's really interesting if you think about how it works. Parker Lewis wrote a, an essay for a company called Unchained Capital um, called Gradually Then Suddenly. And he sort of explains really elegantly why it works. And it, I would also say this is why it doesn't necessarily work for tra- uh, the transparency transparency purposes of supply chains like um, soybeans or cotton. There aren't enough incentivized actors to confirm the rationality of that data, but in Bitcoin, there are because people are winning big money rewards for it. So these, it's like all this global network working um, of good and bad actors, it doesn't matter, working to sort of confirm the accuracy of that blockchain. Um, So when you think about other blockchains applied to different industries, um, confirming the accuracy of that data, it's very hard to incentivize in the way that you have for Bitcoin, right? Which is lots of value. We could actually talk about just that aspect of it in another podcast. Should we bring your husband on? 
<laughs> As an aside, my husband is an editor at Coindesk. I would love to a bring news him editor. On. Oh, <laughs> yeah, the mirrors, Not the mirrors. Bring her on. <laughs> yeah, well, that'd be cool. I'd love to. She would I would love us. to get her. Would, oh, she'd be. Malcolm, if you're us? listening because you're a cosmopolitan magazine. Cosmo Reader, and you're listening to us now. We want you to come on our podcast. We really Melton, do. Melton, we love you. We do love you. I interviewed her <laughs> once. She was Did pretty, she, she was a freaking rock star, man. Honestly, I feel like we do need to come back like at once a month and just tackle more little yeah. aspects of this. Um, and I'm selfishly saying that because maybe as we talk about it, I'll start to understand more of it. Yeah. Right. Yes, Please. right. So, um, I mentioned to you guys, you guys know that I'm here in New Orleans furnishing a house, and I've never actually had to furnish a whole house before, and I'm not independently wealthy, so I can't just go out. So we, my, my family and I have been thrifting our way through New Orleans. And by the way, I want to say that there are some great Goodwills here. Really? Um, mm-hmm. And um, some really funky, fun thrift stores where you can get great stuff except for clothing. Oh, and that, why is that? That's not why we're talking about this, but I mean, you just can't, like I have learned. <laughs> what a great segue. Why is that? <laughs> you just walk, that? don't even look. Just walk past the clothing and go to the home goods or whatever else you want because that's where the good the stuff is. Stuff. We the got heavy huge, stuff that's hard to carry. The, <laughs> yeah, well, it's just fast fashion, right? And that's, um, that is what we have been hearing about. Lately, I think it was um, the New York Times ran a really provocative article. Was it the golden age of thrifting is over? I think that ran last week. Um, It documented how thrift stores are going from being places where people could hunt for quality clothes with charm to dumping grounds for discarded fast fashion, and that's that is really true. It is it is just the pits. You can't you you just the, the gems are so few and far between that I've started to wonder why I would bother. Going there, I need. I would need somebody to curate. Well, I guess that's thrilling. Does that for you? Mm, pitch for Shilla's <laughs> business here. But Shilla, you're in this market. I mean, does this? Did that make sense to you? Is that what you're finding? And and your your mom and pop stores are they overwhelmed with fast fashion? Like, what's happening? Yeah. Well, first of all, I was so proud because one of our store partners, um, Angela, owner of Dorothea's Closet in Des Moines, is 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 the quoted store owner in the piece. Cool. Um, and, you know, I think, um, you know, I, I definitely wouldn't avoid the apparel section in, in vintage and thrift stores. You know, um, I think you really see this problem a lot when stores and especially charity chains are accepting everything that they receive. A lot of the um, boutiques and, and, and store owners um, do a lot of curation. They spend hundreds of hours um, every month sourcing and, and curating the selection of apparel in their stores. So I, I, I wouldn't say to write, write it off, but it is true. Um, there is, it's undoubtedly true. There is much more fast fashion. Apparel production has doubled over the last two decades. A huge part of that is fast fashion increasing in volume. And so that is a very simple and direct correlation. You're going to see more fast fashion hanging on, on, on racks, 100%. But I think that there are two other elements here that are worth talking about that are, that are also interesting, um, elements of this conversation. One is, I think the gap between fast fashion and traditional fashion brands is actually narrowing, huh. and that traditional fashion brands have started emulating some of the practices of fast fashion, oh, that's true. producing more, absolutely yeah. faster. Yeah. As someone who and, went to design and, school, I can yeah. see it. Yeah. Like different, they're, they're more, cheaping out faster, lower quality. And there's a reason why polyester has overtaken cotton as the backbone of textile production, and it's not just because of traditional fast fashion brands. Yeah. Yep. So um, I think um, that another, you know, another effect you're seeing is that in general, more clothes on racks are fast fashion-like in quality. Um, the second thing that I think is interesting to note is about human nature and psychology, which is when something mm-hmm. is cheap and easily replaceable, we think of it as disposable. Yeah. And one other reason why I think fast fashion is is overrepresented on some of these racks is because the consumers of fast fashion, when it no longer fits the style, they've, they've grown tired of the styles. There's a tear in it. You're more likely to just get rid of it and buy another one for five bucks. Um, this is going to feel like a really random aside, but stick with me for a second. Okay. Um, We're here. Stephen Dowling wrote this great piece in the in the. <laughs> thank thank you. Rachel. You're this is a safe space for my random aside. <laughs> you listen to my rant about Bitcoin. This is so. your safe zone. <laughs> Go for it. 
So Stephen Dowling wrote this great piece for BBC a couple years ago. He profiled somebody named Marcel Bick, who in the 1950s took the ballpoint pen, which had previously been considered a luxury product, which I thought was fascinating. It had been previously priced at $100 in 2020 dollars. And and Marcel Bick took the pen, made clever changes to the engineering process, was able to make it cheaper, faster, quicker, and put it out on the retail market for a fraction of the price. And what happened, obviously, we know 100 billion Bic pens have been sold to date, most of them in landfills, because what do we do when they run out of ink? We throw them out. And from his obituary in 1994, The Independent wrote... No one understood better than Marcel Bick that potent 20th century alchemy of high volume, low cost. To this formula, he added the magic catalyst of disposability. Mm. He invented nothing but understood the mass market almost perfectly. Did he invent that the plastic waste crisis? What's happening with fast fashion? Yes, exactly. Oh, then I don't know what does. Oh, gosh. All the pens I've thrown away right. instead of those little <laughs> cartridges. And you get just you one get more thing to be guilty about. <laughs> On her face. <laughs> oh, As no. the writer. Yes. <laughs> I gotta go get what a are we going to find in your, in your backyard if we dig it up? There's going to be a graveyard of pens. I never knew there was a Mr. Bick even. Um, okay. But like, back to this whole, like, right. the, the promise of thrifting. It's supposed to be fantastic, right? So, I mean, it's circular. This is what... Rachel is all about is like recycling these things and thrifting is great because they don't have to be like melted down and re-sewn and cut, right? It's just going on to another right. owner who's going to love the stuff. But if somebody were to buy a fast fashion, a Shein blouse mm-hmm. at a thrift store, is that better? Is that more circular? Rachel's like twisting her head. I mean, there's no an- easy answers to any of this, but I think the reason that this is such a big question is thrift is the most visible part of circularity for consumers, mm. right? It's it's what you see yeah. in stores and you feel like it's the most accessible, like both from a donation, recycling of your clothes sort of standpoint and also a purchasing standpoint. But it's uh, like everything, a little bit more complicated. Really thrifting just helps delay the landf- landfill. Um, all clothes right now, most most of them, except for one a small one percent are eventually going to end up in either insulation or uh, in a landfill or incineration. So certainly buying used from an environmental perspective, no matter what it is, whether it's fast fashion or otherwise, is almost always better than buying new. But the actual benefits depend on brands committing to produce less and us committing to have having more reasonable consumption habits and purchasing less, whether it be thrift or new. But data is telling us the opposite. In fact, there's a shocking discovery that the rise of thrifting may be also fueling fast fashion. Um, A GWI market report states that over one-fifth of Gen Z and millennials who are planning to buy secondhand clothing um, due to rising inflation costs and more interest in sustainability are actually purchasing more than their boomer parents. For the first time ever, the boomers are doing more right for the environment in a way because boomers are more— yeah, no, they're, they're, they they prefer traditional styles over trend over trends, which could mean they end up consuming less. And this was re- this was also confirmed by a recent McKinsey report that states the consumers most engaged with sustainability are also those most likely to generate waste by renewing their wardrobes every season. So in this weird way, thrift and fast fashion are sort of competing and eating each other. And if you can buy clothing for more cheaply, new from a fast fashion brand, and those same items are almost equal the cost in a thrift store, we're getting a very destabilized environment. And down chain, like, it causes a lot of problems too because the clothes don't stop at the thrift store. Only 20% of the clothes are sold in thrift stores. The rest, since thrift stores have to um, turn their inventory over all the time, the rest are exported either for insulation or wiping rags or to other economies that will then resell them for thrifts. Um, But if the quality of these clothes are so low by the time that they get to the next buyer that has purchased these exports, that is waste. And so we have this sort of downstream impact. It's not just what you're seeing in the thrift stores. It's Yes, certainly it's a problem for the thrift stores that that we see, but it's also a problem for the entire global thrift supply chain. You know, you just made me 
like you said, two things that I think were kind of a little bit profound, actually, like a lot profound. One of them was thinking about the pricing, and it struck me that I did have this feeling this week going through thrift stores where I would see a T-shirt for $7.99, and there was a time when $7.99 seemed pretty cheap for a T-shirt, but then I'm looking at it like, that seems a little high price for that thrift store to be asking for that price for a T-shirt, you know, like, I'd probably buy it for yeah. $5.99 at H&M. Um, Absolutely. That's the one of the longest lasting, most damaging effects of fast fashion companies, which is it's reset consumer expectations for how much clothing should cost. Yeah. And any item of clothing that you're getting for less than 10 bucks, there are human rights abuses and, you know, yeah. climate impacts it, it baked into that business right. model. Really bad. And keep in mind that the thrift stores can't afford to sell it for 20 cents, which it resell fast fashion for 20 cents. They right. have overhead costs. They have sorting and labor costs. So there's a tension right. there. Right. I mean, there's a real value there. The other thing— What was the second profound point? Yeah, yeah well, um, actually, maybe it's, it, it sparked a question. So you, you mentioned several times, Rachel, that these clothes that aren't good enough to be actually sold in the thrift store then end up in insulation. Um, or places like that. Some, I have a lot of clothes that, like, I, for some reason, I always get holes in the front of my T-shirts. I have no idea why, right hmm, around my belly. Huh. I don't know what I'm doing, but maybe it's picking up <laughs> okay. my cat. All that it's another episode. shimmying on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> another episode. Get off the damn floor, and then it would. No, so, and I'm always thinking there's no way a thrift store can can sell this. There's no, why should I give this to Goodwill? It's got holes in it. But then I feel bad throwing it in the trash because it's going to go straight to a landfill. So what should I do with these clothes that are not good enough for really thrift, but I don't want them to have in a landfill? How do I get them to the rag sellers? You can't directly. Now, really, the only way is either for you to throw it out or give it to a thrift store who may or may not be able to sort it and um, sell it into the insulation industry. Or repair it, and and repair I think it. I hope yeah. a, I, I hope a, I hope a listener creates a um, a darning uh, an amazing. I could darn my t-shirts. Actually, shame on me for not darning my t-shirts. But but cr- creating some some way of, of bringing repair services to f- to front of mind options for for consumers. So you, so that it is an option that you think of right away versus how do I get rid of it? Well, I want that option. By the way, you reminded me that several blocks down from. From my house in New Orleans is a great big bin that looks like those kinds of um, bins you throw clothes into, like for Salvation Army or something. It's for recycling your Mardi Gras beads. It's, it has a whole sign about how wow. you recycle your Mardi Niche. Gras beads and builds jobs for people. Sustainable partying. I love yeah. it. <laughs> I hope they have them for those those large plastic drinking glasses that they give people to. Oh, uh, right. There, I wish. You know? But there's good stuff happening out there. And um, and there's lots to be optimistic about. Two recent startups caught our attention here at Hot Buttons. First, I think it's pronounced Carbios. I hope it's pronounced Carbios. It's signed an agreement with On, Patagonia, Puma, Solomon to, to further its work using enzymes that will devour polyester fibers. And that's a form of recycling, I think. We've talked about the it difficulties is. in recycling polyester. So is this like, how big is this, Rachel? Well, it's a big deal. I think it's just another indication that we are moving towards uh, a situation where we do have more actual recycling options, not just reuse. Um, the consortium itself is it was interesting to me because the players that depend most on the use of polyester, which are footwear, performance, sports, and outdoor gear companies, um, and they depend on polyester because we haven't yet found a material uh, that is as cost-effective and durable and the right weight. And so these folks are joining forces. They're calling this a bio-recycling coalition, which is interesting. I think this is a version of chemical recycling. So Carbios uses a technology called Czyme, C-Z-Y-M-E, where PET, which is the building blocks of polyester, can be broken down to its core monomers by enzymes, which can then be used to manufacture 100% recycled and infinitely recyclable PET. This is important because 60% of textiles are polyester these days. They use PET, and PET is the most abundantly used plastic in general in circulation today. The current process for recycling, which is happening at a very, very, very small scale for recycling um, fibers, is called mechanical, which doesn't break down the fibers into their monomer form. So every time that you mechanically recycle something, 
Uh, for one, it can only recycle clear plastic. So it's very limited in what mechanical recycling can, can recycle. And it degrades in quality each, each cycle. It was actually, the I thought this was interesting because I'd never heard of natural enzyme recycling. I'd heard of chemical recycling. I think it's probably similar, but I'm not sure what the benefits are. But the same end goal where you can recycle a lot of different kind of plastics that are not necessarily even clean back into new plastics. So Rachel, is it your understanding that it can be recycled endlessly? Endlessly, over and over. Oh, that's wow. Yeah, because it can, can be broken down to its original monomer. So mm-hmm. that can just be rebuilt and rebuilt and rebuilt. But then, then, I mean, this is great, but like when we think about plastics as they stand today, we aren't recycling most of our plastics, not because the technology doesn't exist, but because we haven't collected it. So right. yes, yeah. this is great, but like... <laughs> We haven't even talked about like the impact of microfibers, which if we're making more plastics, we're going to have a microfiber pollution problem. And microfibers are what falls off our clothing when we wash it as consumers and also equally when we're producing textiles. So for every 500 t-shirts that you produce, um, you release about one t-shirt into the ocean in the textile production process. Ugh. Which you so, can believe if you think about your lint screen in your dryer. Every time yep, we run dryer right. load, we get a handful of, that's all microfibers, yep. those it things. Is. Both cellulosic Wait. and plastic microfibers. Just one more question on this, Rachel. What, what's your understanding of how, how would they deal with mixed fabrics or shoelaces or buttons and zippers? You, you, you brought that up in the last, I don't know, maybe we don't know enough. Well, there's two parts to that. Like, there's a labor problem in, in that, like, there's going to be someone who has to sort this out and detrim it. It's what we call detrimming, meaning cutting off the zippers, cutting out the buttons, unless they mm-hmm. are made of 100% PET. Um, the ultimate goal, goal in the design process, I think, for circularity is going to be that we're designing much more with single materials or singular mm-hmm. types of materials. If there's a mixed fiber, this technology, I think think can can take out the cellulose but I'm not sure I don't think I think I read I think it said something in there about that that it could yeah. that it could deal with these that get separated somehow ultimately you want them to take out the cellulose and be able to reuse that and not throw it away those are, that's kind of like the holy grail like you want uh-huh. a mixed fiber to be able to take both out separate them and reuse them again um but not all technologies can do that so I'm just take out the cellulose and maybe throw it away or the same with the PET well, I'll say it's 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 a it's a note of optimism for me that they are. This is a this sounds like a really sensible, doable project. So good for Carbios and the consortium. Um, there was another one too that I thought was cool. It's a product called Simply Fiber, and it's led by a fashion veteran, Maria Incher Orang. You probably know her, Rachel, because you know everybody. She just raised three and a half million dollars to make textiles from wood pulp and other plant-based materials. Um, they say that it can eliminate traditional spinning, weaving, cutting, and sewing and reduce 35% of the materials used in the supply chain that end up as waste. Um, the images that I've seen, I saw a pair of shoes that um, were made with this so stuff. Cool. And weren't they? I yeah. totally would wear them. They they me looked too. to me like a cross between Crocs and Yeezys. You know, yeah. something mm-hmm. just really comfortable and call. cushy to put in. Yeah. Um, but they, they were super, they were edgy. I guess this is like... 3D printing with this stuff? Is that? Yeah. Do you guys know? Yeah. I mean, it's already happening um, with footwear um, quite a bit. Um, But the interesting part is the the material that they're using, which they claim could potentially replace the need for what we were just talking about, PET, plastics, and clothing. Um, And I think it's, it is, they claim that it can um, be used for both um, apparel and footwear, but it was most, the Footwear part was most interesting to me because footwear is, as I as I mentioned in um, one of our last episodes, um, it's the hardest to get away from using plastic in footwear just because of its durability and weight and performance. So if this has comparable mm-hmm. durability and weight and performance and actually does take less energy um, and less renewable, non-renewable resources and the market likes it, and that's what to your point, Christina, that we like the way that shoe looks is really important because that yeah. means people might buy it. And to scale any new technology, you have to offer the market something that they're actually going to buy. You can't just say this is better for the environment and they don't like right. it and it doesn't perform. Um, so that's yeah. that's interesting. That's just the yeah. icing on the cake after you like the product. Right, exactly. exactly. Yeah. And they also mentioned that it, that it can 
has the potential to beat the unit economics of polyester, which I found interesting. So it's not just better for you, shoppers will like it, but it also is going to be better for your bottom line. Like that seems, that seems like a no-brainer. So guys, it's the time in our podcast where we talk about our own hot buttons. Shilla, Rachel, what's been poking you? I have, um, I have two. One is... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Give us more! <laughs> certainly a lot can be said about British politics, and it, and it certainly has a lot of its fair share of warts. But I think it's surreal to see a politician face consequences for right? transgressions that frankly pale in comparison to some of the politicians over no here. Um, and so... Boris. <laughs> that's that's <Yeah>. one. <laughs> and then second... Um, I think my highlight of last week was getting to see Rachel in person. Rachel and oh, I, I met in the city. I missed that. No fair. It was lovely. Not, not in the metaverse in real life. And we had coffee and we, were, we couldn't find anywhere to sit. So we literally just stood staring at each other and, and talking away for an hour on the, on the corner of a street. Like, like a real New York City meet and greet. It's <laughs> a good one. Rachel, what about you? So I have two, too. It was meeting Shalin in person. Mm-hmm. You're like, I was always going to say that. I was, I was actually going to I was actually going to say that. Um, <laughs> and then my second one is just bear with me this story that was in Retail Dive about there's a lingerie company called Adore Me, and um, they're fighting Amazon I know them. because there's a fake on there called Adomi. <laughs> Oh my god! Just the oh, wow. fact that it's called a domi on Amazon is, and they, a few years ago, th- this company or this player started calling themselves a domi and selling knockoffs and using their images, and they've been going through the like general email box of Amazon for a long time trying to get this resolved, and every time they got it resolved, the pictures would just pop back up again. So in April, they started selling on Amazon because their customers were getting confused. Yeah, I totally get it. Wow. Their like, customers were getting they're confused. They're gunning for so. the Victoria's Secret crowd. I mean, that's what their market is. I already did my hot button. My hot button was actually, it, because it's been so much on my mind this week, it was the, the thrifting thing, which we talked about at length. That was your hot button. That, it really is. I mean, I, I like I, that got your buttons hot this I week. I started noticing that I was going into thrift stores and rushing fast, you know, as quickly as possible past the clothes so I could get to the good stuff and back. I thought, oh, this is not the way it used to be. So that's all for the show. Please support us by following us on Twitter. We're at Hot Buttons Pod. Or send a link to friends and colleagues. Go to Apple or Spotify and give us a rating. We really appreciate your support. If you want to email us with story ideas, send a note to hotbuttons at postscriptaudio.com. Hot Buttons is hosted by me, Christina Binkley, Shilla Kim Parker, and Rachel Kibbe. The show is produced by Postscript Media. Our senior editor is Anne Bailey. Our engineers are Greg Villefranc and Sean Marquand. Cecily Meza-Martinez is our managing producer. Stephen Lacey, Scott Clavenna, and Rachel Kibbe are our executive producers. Postscript Media makes podcasts at the intersection of climate with culture, politics, business, and tech. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures. Prelude is a venture capital firm focused on climate solutions across energy, food, agriculture, transportation, logistics, and advanced materials. Someday somebody's going to tell me what advanced materials are. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch up with you next week. (laughs) It's it's really complicated because... Gosh, okay, can I nerd out a little bit? I know we've been talking a lot, but I'll, I'll, I'll you nerd can. out a little bit. Um, okay. I have a task rabbit guy at yes, the door. Yes, go for it, and then I'll nerd <laughs> out. <laughs>